But these prescriptive, rational approaches you can take that are data integrity centric to complement a lot of the other defense and depth cybersecurity solutions you have for behavioral analysis, that is a, really a, an extremely effective response to the ransomware crisis, just as it would be in, in we're seeing actually evidence, you know, whether it's in China, whether it's in Korea, Vietnam, large parts of Africa, Germany, Australia, New Zealand as a prime example. When you take these layered approaches, you can completely contain the threat. And, and I think that's within the realm of every business and every government organization is targeted. Welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I'm joined again by Val Berkovici, founder and CEO <laughs> of Chainkit. Val, great to have you on the show again. Thanks so much for making time to join us. Really great to be back, Des. So we're going to have a great conversation around a couple of big topics, specifically ransomware and cyber attacks. And in the context of the massive increase of incidents around healthcare space, particularly hospitals, uh, and an enormous space, an enormous risk, and uh, given that it's 2020 and the world's been hit by COVID-19, the global pandemic uh, a, a derivative of, of the coronavirus, uh, there's no more pertinent time to talk about this than, than ever. Uh, and again, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it's, it's been in the news a lot lately, and, and, and I got an email from the other day around this whole topic with a couple of articles. In, in particular, I think you mentioned uh, NBC News, and, and I don't think there's any major news outlet or even minor news outlet that hasn't hit this topic because uh, it is so rampant. Um, but before we jump into that whole topic, I wonder um, if we could maybe just quickly do a little segue into kind of yourself and your role and maybe just a quick introduction to Chainkit. Uh, so you're the CEO and founder of Chainkit. I wonder if you could maybe just give us a quick introduction to the company, Chainkit itself, and what its, uh, its core remit is. be my pleasure, Des. As the name implies, Chainkit allows you to build things, uh, specifically chains of custody. And we'll explain how those things enable you to detect malware, ransomware more quickly, and also prepare to actually respond and recover from it in a systemic way as opposed to a more random or bespoke way. Uh, and uh, that, that lets you interrupt some of the things we call in the industry attack chains. So when you can disrupt the attackers and the chain of actions they take you know, against you, as well as to be able to build chains of custody around what is your data, what are your systems, what your network should look like, you're in a far better stance, a far better position to deal with the onslaught of these evolving threats and evolving attacks because they're never the same twice and they seem to unfortunately get smarter and faster with every new wave. Fantastic. Now, uh, as we mentioned in the show, we're going to be talking about ransomware and in particular the parallels that it has to um, COVID-19 uh, and I guess uh, you know the renewed emphasis on data integrity and data protection around that space. Um, but firstly, how are you doing and how's you and, how are you and your team doing? I mean, you've been through the same challenges that the whole world's been through with regard to having to, I imagine, pivot to work from home, run the business remotely. Uh, I mean, how are you doing personally? How's this year impacted you? And, and what sort of changes have you had to make to sort of get through the sort of the 2020 experience so far? Yeah, it's been really interesting. We're a global organization. I actually have sort of a what we call in North America a trans-border family. Part of my family is up here in Canada, where I'm at presently for a little while. And uh, most of my family as well in business is down in the U.S. and in Silicon Valley and in the Northern California Bay Area. So it's been interesting to see how, particularly in 2020, as a company, we found our product market fit. We found our repeatable sales cycles. We found our horizontal solution for multiple industry verticals in an era where you can't meet at a coffee shop anymore. You can't whiteboard with your customers as naturally as you have in the past. It's all these very formalized, very time-limited 
virtual sessions. We're all having video conferencing with each other and clearly figuring out the art of not, you know, getting into Zoom fatigue and other sorts of, of things that are, are a bit mentally and stressfully wearing as well. So there's certainly an evolving set of lessons that we're learning as we're, we're growing as a company uh, in an unprecedented time of business uh, and unprecedented time of cybersecurity. Well, congratulations on, on forming the company in the first place and, and also uh, similarly just getting through 2020 uh, and staying physically healthy and mentally healthy as well as keeping the team safe. I think we all deserve a medal if we survive this year, yes. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those years where, uh, you know, I think many people talk about there's going to be PhDs written about this year. But um, if anything, uh, one of my key takeaways from it myself is it's rehumanized the planet in so many ways and that, you know, it's okay now to see a a cattail zoom past, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, a, a screen in a meeting or, or children running the background. And, you know, once upon a time, there was a meme that went around the world of, of the BBC a journalist who does right. finance reports right. from, from, from uh, Southeast Asia. And his kids come running down the hall and come in and he's like, shoo, shoo, you know, and his wife skids in the door. Um, that's everyday life now, right? And we're all okay with it. In fact, he was ahead of his time. And we have a hard and fast <laughs> rule, especially for internal meetings at the companies. If, if there's a cat in the frame, you must name the cat and you must try and bring the cat if the cat will agree <laughs> forward to the meeting for a minute or so. Same with kids if they're amenable. So uh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it, it, you know, I mean, it's hard to say there's any upsides of this year, all things in, in, in fairness, but uh, there is that. And uh, I guess as we ease out of 2020 now, given it's, uh, you know, effectively, well, it's the 2nd of November here and 1st of November with you. We're easing out of 2020 and figuring out what that means. We're hitting the Christian holiday period of Christmas. And then we're trying to ease into 2021 and all those challenges, which is why this conversation is so important. I really appreciate you making time. I grabbed some notes to describe uh, ChainKit, and I, I might just do a little segue here um, uh, for our audience. So ChainKit has a tangible, direct, fresh new value prop for any organization impacted by or worried about their heightened risk of exactly such fearsome ransomware attacks that we're going to talk about. Uh, so much so that uh, ChainKit now has specific... Uh, and relatable narrative that's worthy of, of a whole range of conversations with organizations that have uh, you know small medium-sized business footprints through to large global uh, uh, enterprise or uh, you know state and federal governments in particular or agencies in between and and I do recommend that anybody listening who has even the slightest inkling that they've got a risk or a challenge in the space to reach out to Val and his team at Chainkit and have that conversation sooner than later because, uh, you know, the earlier you can have this conversation, the earlier you can mitigate some of the risks and be aware of what's going on. Uh, nobody wants to be on the front page of their local newspaper or the New York Times as being the recipient of one of these things, as is the case with so many hospitals now, unfortunately. Uh, and, and it's not even just that, in my view. It's also the fact that uh, there's that that commercial risk of being uh, uh, seen as at risk. There's the, the challenge of potentially data being breached and leaked and so forth. But more importantly, in a ransomware situation, which we'll talk about in more detail soon, you could potentially lose the data um, or be held to, quote-unquote, ransom to pay something back. But it's now the case in a lot of uh, countries that it's actually illegal to pay the ransom to get the data back uh, because that money could be used for terrorism and other various things which are heinous. As if these poor victims organizationally and individually need even more stress or tension. But yes, it's an undeniable reality we have to plan for as part of our, our risk going forward. Indeed. The, the, I think there's, there's, there's an ever-increasingly heightened um, need to have this conversation. So you know, for our audience, please do reach out to Val and we'll have full details in the show description and, and links to do so. Reach out sooner than later and have that conversation for this very reason. Uh, and, and to that point, let's let's dive into this whole thing. So as we mentioned a couple of times now, we've seen this, uh, you know, a significant increase in cyber attacks, uh, in particular ransomware incidents. 
Um, I wonder, you know, could we start with you maybe sharing your take on the current state of what appears to be a tsunami, in my mind, of new incidents of cybersecurity challenges and resulting ransomware incidents, particularly focused on the healthcare industry, which understandably was set to occur in light of the fact the world's dealing with a, a global pandemic in the form of COVID-19. Cyber criminals are never slow to take advantage of any opportunity where chinks in the armour appear in any place they can see a way to make a profit from any of these sorts of security exposures. I wonder if you could just maybe set the scene for us uh, in the context of 2020 in, in, in light of what's happened with COVID-19. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, certainly the, the the war and battle metaphor has been applied to cybersecurity for some time now. We discussed that in a prior podcast of how apt it is. And, you know, from a more cliched perspective, we see a lot of analogies to Sun Tzu and the art of war. But I think the one that applies much more directly here would be Machiavelli. And the fact that, you know, the end really just does, does justify the means, as we're seeing from the attacker side, where the attacks themselves are getting more ruthless and not just hitting higher value targets more efficiently, obviously, on a lucrative side, but also softer targets, unfortunately, which have that soft underbelly, such as hospitals, such as, you know, people in a, in a you know, damaging, vulnerable position already just being further exploited. And so it's that evolution that I'm tracking very, very closely myself, where, Perhaps in the early era, you know, the early era of COVID response around the March-April timeframe as we were all initially adjusting, the threat was perceived as preserving intellectual property around vaccine research and preventing espionage from other countries that it might be have nation-state-inspired actors trying to get, you know, vaccine formulas earlier and, and so forth. But it's really shifted heavily now towards just you know, being able to prey on vulnerable folks, the, the ability almost to uh, to unleash a form of cyber terrorism where you're targeting patients in hospitals and you're, you're looking to, you know, impact the actual surgeries, delay the treatments or, or perhaps postpone the treatments past, you know, the mortality rates and so forth of individuals. Uh, and what's really fascinating and inspiring to me on one end is the heroism that I'm seeing. So I'm seeing truly, particularly this past week, where we've reached almost a fever pitch of attacks on U.S. hospitals. And this is not new to Europeans that have had their healthcare institutions attacked recently as well. Uh, but we're seeing heroism on the part of vendors. You know, I, I like to call out some um, really well-known vendors in the incident response space, for example, FireEyes, Mandiant Division. We're seeing leading managed security providers like Red Canary. And by the way, these are all unsponsored shout outs. I have no formal <laughs> business relationship with these folks. I'm just an industry just, observer and I'm seeing folks that are doing really good work uh, and that are you know, promoting naturally their good work and, and, and just making sure that people are aware. Uh, but I'm also perhaps the most inspiring thing I've seen so far is the heroism by just some of the incident response professionals, the individuals out there that are on Reddit, on Twitter, volunteering their time openly to any impacted organization, particularly recently with vulnerable people like patients being treated in hospitals, volunteering their time to be able to add order to chaos during a stressful incident response situation and be able to actually you know, contain damage if possible, but also quickly recover without paying ransom, as I mentioned earlier on, is a really, really vital one as possible uh, and get, get these you know, essentially frontline essential organizations, essential services back up and running quickly with as minimal a disruption as possible. The, you know, the, it hits the entire spectrum of healthcare as well. You know, the slightest effort invested in, in a web search on this whole topic uh, of ransomware and healthcare will, will just blow your mind and break your heart. I've seen it in aged care facilities, <clears throat> uh, which are the hardest hit because of COVID-19 because they're the highest risk profile uh, for a range of, 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 of physical health reasons. 
I've seen at the other end of the spectrum with mental health centres. Now, we had one last week where a, a centre was hit and, and all their patient data was, was uh, not only uh, uh, encrypted and held to ransom, but also partially breached to incentivize them. And we've had everything between. We've had small GPs, we've had medium-sized r- rural hospitals, uh, we've had you know some of the largest of largest chains of, of, of hospitals and, and special spaces. I don't think there's anywhere in the world that hasn't been hit as a region, and I don't think there's any profile. Uh, do you think it's a case, uh, you know, w- with this enormous spike in it, do you think it's a case that there's specific focus on uh, types of risk profiles, or do you think it's just a case that they're just out to get anybody that they can touch uh, in in order to just make money? There's certainly uh, always going to be a strong, strong economic incentive and, and you know economic influence to all of the actions going on with regards with regards to ransomware. However, I don't think the timing this week, prior to the U.S. election, and you know I'm cognizant of the fact that this will probably be heard shortly after the uh, the election itself at least ends, whether we know the results or not. But the timing is not a coincidence. The fact that we're hitting you know high-profile, vulnerable targets again, this is a form of cyber terrorism, uh, is definitely impacting what we're seeing right now. And the heroism I mentioned on the private sector side has actually been mirrored on the public sector side, where we're seeing some new organizations under the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, like CISA. For those that aren't familiar with CISA, that's a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency coordinating with Health and Human Services in charge of all healthcare in the U.S. and, of course, the FBI in being able to identify more and more of these attacks quickly, be able to give all sorts of other perhaps future impacted healthcare organizations some really detailed heads up on how to prepare and what to do. Uh, and, and that's, I think, contributing to, you know, hopefully a unifying effect, you know, for the country, for the public and private sector in dealing with this. And I think it's actually having some healthy, long-term, emotionally driven outcomes as well with regards to the anger now that we're seeing across even the political spectrum. This is almost a, a bipartisan issue now, which is rare, where the community is now not just urging some more, more forceful response from law enforcement, but thinking a bit more strategically in terms of even military response where attribution is definite when this is coming from individually, you know, sponsored countries. And more, most importantly, I think, long-term government policy action on what are we going to do to not just put victims in this essentially, you know, no-win, lose-lose situation of being victim-shamed, being victimized, and then being told, oh, you can't even pay the ransom to actually get back up and running some, you know, mission-critical, life-critical healthcare services. There's got to be government policy action put in place where we're not placing these organizations in this kind of situations and leaving them helpless. So the anger that I'm seeing in the community across the board hopefully will spur some logical cooperation, coordination, and, and action. Indeed. You mentioned the interesting word there, anger. And I just wanted to just touch on that briefly, because I think a number of the conversations I have with people uh, around the world on this, but particularly here in Southeast Asia and Australia and in, in my backyard, people ask, who are these folk? Who, who's doing this, right? And, and you've touched on a couple of those things, because they immediately become angry, because it's like, well, who's attacking me? And as you outlined just a moment ago, it's like, you know, it, it can be anything from an individual sitting there. And, and, you know, we've got this mental image of like the media has of like the little little dude in the dark corner with the hoodie on, you know, tapping away and, and whatnot and, and in people's minds doing drugs. But, the, you know, that isn't the case. But the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, you've got state actors who are whole nations, because I think these days it's no there's no surprise that cybersecurity space and the digital world is kind of where war is being waged now. People aren't lobbing bombs across each other's um, state lines or, or, or borders and they're not throwing ICBMs at each other. 
We can't afford to do that. We'd blow the planet pretty quickly. But there's no doubt that countries are at war in, in the cyberspace uh, realm. And, and ransomware is just one of those weapons in my mind. So you've got this full, full spectrum, I imagine, and I'd love to get your take on this, of who is at the other end of this thing. Because in a previous life myself, uh, working either in, in defense or government agencies or, or in large enterprise, I had a scenario where uh, I was literally just sitting in a shirt and a jacket. I'd taken my tie off. It had been a long day and we were tracking a particular incident. And we managed to get access. And this is a while back when, when ISPs used to actually use proper fully routed IP address space. There wasn't, you know, we hadn't run out of IP address space. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the sort of these days you end up with a, a class of IP address space that has to sit behind a router and does network address translation to get to you and the Internet. So it's not that easy to find the other person's device. But back at this stage, you know, decades ago now, uh, this person and their, their computer uh, and it was running Windows NT. So that ages it had a full-blown IP address, so I could actually ping them and I could get to them via remote session and I managed to get access to their machine and we were tracking this action and running the logs and I finally managed to turn on the camera and I was shocked to find out that essentially I could have been looking in the mirror. It was a, a young, I won't say you know, what uh, agent sex, but it was a young person uh, who wasn't that different in age to me, um, similar build, looking like they were sitting in an office, quite professionally dressed, just following a process. And in their yeah, mind, they were probably at work, more, right? <laughs> that's a much more accurate image. And in fact, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you have to take a step back. I think we discussed the economics of this last time we were on. The cybercrime industry and the profits alone from cybercrime annually are larger than Walmart, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Tesla combined. The annual profits of cybercrime are already measured by multiple surveys and studies to be $1.5 trillion. And counting. So these are very well resourced cyber adversaries on the other side. To your point, very, very professional. You know, often uh, certainly would have been in an office setting had we not all started working from home, but <laughs> organized very much like a business. In fact, a very efficient uh, supply chain in the dark web if you examine it carefully with all sorts of products and services available. But fundamentally, I have sort of a, you know, if we're going to date ourselves, uh, an image of some of the first professional mercenaries people can think of, which were the French Foreign Legion. Right. But fundamentally, we are talking about, you know, criminal organizations that are professional and offering themselves up for sale. So it's very much a mercenary capability, highly professional, as I mentioned, and effective that is for hire by nation states often within the same border for some of the protections that that can offer when you're executing a crime across the other end of it, like you said, a, an IP connection or a wire. And, and that really is the modern image of what's happening right now. Professionals, extremely well-resourced, often 10x better resourced than their victims, more coordinated than their victims because they're actually more efficient supply chain than individually siloed, you know, silos of, of, of shame mm. when you're getting attacked and outed. Uh, and, and that's why the threat, I think, is just reaching these these emotionally distressing levels right now because it feels like an epidemic, you know, a cyber epidemic, but the the reasons behind it are actually very very rational and and uh, and sound if you will in terms of the advantages the bad guys have versus the good guys and the rules that the bad guys don't have to play by where where you know almost every victim organization certainly has laws and regulations they have to comply with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the good guys have got to play by the rules and the bad guys through the rule book out the window and they're just chasing the dollar in many cases. And, I mean, ransomware, is, in this case, in the context of, of what we're talking about with ransomware and healthcare today, um, there's, there's no doubt there's money behind it. But in, as you alluded to before, in some cases it is because it's effectively an act of war in cybersecurity, which we won't get into today. That's a whole different show. 
COVID nineteen's had a huge impact on this. There's no doubt about that. And and as we alluded to before, like you know, any chink in the armor is going to be leveraged. And and this is definitely a scenario where, because of COVID nineteen and the stretch the stretching of the healthcare infrastructure and environments and and the human resource around that people if they're first responders or whether they're healthcare professionals in the hospital, they're tired, they're stressed, they're emotionally worn out, they're just trying to keep people alive. The rest of the world's working from home. They're potentially on you know, personal Wi-Fi, on personal broadband, often using a personal computer. They're definitely not behind the firewall in enterprise space, not always on the, the, the tightened down uh, uh, you know, SOE standard operating environment with a hardened uh, uh, operating system and so forth and monitoring tools. So all of these little gateways have opened up and, and you know, whether it's an individual sitting there physically hands-on keyboard or whether it's an automated script that's just crawling the web, this has exploded. But one of the interesting things I'm, getting, I'm interested in getting your take on is, I mean, COVID-19 has definitely had a huge impact on this in, in the uptick of the incidents. Um, but this problem existed prior to 2020, right? So, I mean, I don't think anyone could argue that, that the impact of 2019 and the global impact uh, you know, has been minor or trivial in any way. It's been beyond significant with regard to the increase in data protection and cybersecurity issues, um, be it the shift, as I said before, to work from home or, or you know, the increased shift to mobile technology working in the likes of hospitals and retail and service industries as a whole. But the risks and impacts around this space of cyber attacks and ransom, I mean, these have been around for decades now, right? I wonder... If I can maybe, in your view, just get your take on the current state of the world and how that's changed the landscape of data protection and digital risk and what you're seeing out there in context of the fact that you're on the bleeding edge, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, with your time with organizations who are faced with the need to respond to this whole challenge. Yeah, there really has been you know, a fairly seismic change if we sit back and, and, and look at it a bit more analytically at a bit higher level. Uh, we love to try and frame, you know, when we're we're, we're looking at all, all sorts of chaotic activity, if we have the luxury of being able to zoom out just a little bit and frame what's going on, to your point, Des, this is not a new trend. This is not a new playing field. If you look at, I think, a construct I raised last time we spoke, which is a, a canonical, canonical context for cybersecurity, and that's the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, the center of gravity of that triad has shifted dramatically over the past 18 months or so, predating COVID but accelerated by COVID. Whereas in the past, we've seen a lot of concerns around data breaches, primarily influencing cyber risk strategy and spend on various initiatives to maintain the confidentiality of data, to keep unauthorized prying eyes away from the data. So you've seen the industry you know, over-concentrated, if you will, on the confidentiality pillar of the CIA triad at the expense of the integrity pillar and the availability pillar. Yet as ransomware now is quickly rising through the ranks and pretty much outpacing anything else going on in in the cybercrime area today, you're seeing the focus definitely shift towards uh, the pendulum almost swing violently away from confidentiality towards integrity and availability. And one of the things we're looking at closely is the fact that this is almost being gamified right now and, and these gamification rules do apply. So the industry, on the one hand, uh, anyone that studies game theory will know, is sort of trying to follow the crowd on one hand and say, hey, we've gotten really good in the confidentiality world at behavioral analysis, applying human security analytic skills and accelerating those with machine learning technology so that we can do pattern matching better and better. And effectively, that's really if you take a, you know, take a look at the actual metaphor of gamification, 
we've gotten better at playing chess. I mean, gotten better at playing checkers, I should say, and better at playing dominoes with regards to pattern matching in cybersecurity today. But if you really want to play this game well, and if you want to define the rules where Machiavellianism and mean, you know, any all the means justify the ends don't necessarily play to the uh, adversary's advantage, you want to really think about playing chess. And you want to apply and implement an environment by which the adversary has to play chess by known rules. And that's where applying a strategy that combines both the probabilistic technologies of behavioral analysis and human security analysis amplified by machine learning, we complement those probabilistic techniques with deterministic, rule-based techniques that you can actually predict. And that's where I'm really, really encouraged to see some amazing work being done by NIST, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, where they've published now four reports in 2020, all focused on ransomware and all from that deterministic data integrity perspective where they walk you through their canonical framework. For those that don't recall, it's that five-step framework for cybersecurity of identifying all your assets, implementing a protection plan in place for those identified assets, then actively detecting any threats, responding as programmatically and systematically as you can to the threats as they come, and then being able to fully recover from any damage that's measured. Those five steps now are mapped across three reports that NIST has published, uh, those reports, you know, we'll find links to them. They're SP 1800-25, 26, and 11. And the most important thing about those reports is they give you, again, this foundation that you can apply to very prescriptive reference architectures that name some vendors, but they're fundamentally vendor agnostic. And you can apply this prescriptive architecture not to be able to respond faster to the current ransomware threats, but remembering that these threats are always evolving, always improving, unfortunately, their efficiency, their speed. And so this foundation that NIST recommends, it's prescriptive, lets you respond to all the threats that will be coming up in the future as they adapt and change, as they outrun and outpace the behavioral analytics and machine learning technology. Uh, and so you want to make sure that you can always be in this position to be able to identify the threats and respond to them instead of just detect them faster and faster and then find out that by the time the attack has happened, it's too late. I imagine that the conversations you're having with people from boardroom level down uh, mirror this in many ways, as you've outlined it, and that is that they get hit by a ransomware incident. It's everywhere. It's on every device, you know, every laptop or every server or wherever it might be. And they, they initially sort of start thinking about a shotgun approach. They're just trying to spread themselves too far and too thin, trying to figure out how to respond uh, and then you get to the point where you, you have a conversation with them and you bring them back to, as you said, sort of, you know, chess uh, versus checkers. And that is, uh, you know, in checkers, you're jumping around the board, uh, if you'll pardon the pun. And chess, you're, you're attempting to bring strategy and move into it and thinking three or four moves ahead. I mean, does that mirror the kind of experience you have when you go into some of these conversations? People say, right, we've been hit with ransomware. We don't quite know where to go. We've been running around like headless chickens trying to solve it help? Where do we start? Uh, do you then get to sort of that, as you've alluded to, the sort of game theory was like, well, stop running around trying to hit every device. Let's just, you know, go back to where did it enter the organization? Uh, where was the first uh, infection? How did it spread? Where did it spread? Because, I, I, you know, we've seen scenarios here in Australia, for example, and I won't name them, but a major logistics company and transport company uh, got hit months and months and months ago. And, and, and over a series of weeks, they went through the process of restoring from backup and getting back to a good position uh, but what they didn't do was find how it got into the organization, from what I can tell. 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, bang, they hit again, right back to where they were before. And you know, they've probably repeated the process of going back, back up some restoring, getting to a point in time they were safe. And I'm, I'm certain somebody now has said, hey, stop, before you go too, further, too far down the road, how did this get in here? And we need to go and solve that problem. Is that the type of conversation you're having with people now when they come to you at ChainKit and say, talk to us about ransomware, whether we've had an incident or not? What's the difference between sort of, you know, that scattergun, shotgun approach versus strategic direction and planning? In fact, yes. Uh, the thing that I love about this, and we, we mentioned this word, this term early on in the conversation, there are some very tangible things that can be done right now, no longer abstract. So the gamification analogy of chess means that you have to pick a board and it's actually a very well-defined board right now that the cybersecurity community, the InfoSec community is using called the MITRE ATT&CK framework. The ATT&CK is spelled with an A as an ampersand in the middle in case you're Googling this for the first time. But if you speak with your cybersecurity professionals, if you're not working at their level, you'll know that this is effectively a playing board that's becoming extremely well-defined right now. And it's becoming a way for the actual you know, victimization side of the industry to band together and have a systemic approach you know, to mapping and identifying the problem. And the thing about working on the cyber attack framework, the MITRE attack framework, is that you actually now are playing the game of chess against an adversary. The adversary may realize now that they're dealing with more mature victims. And the adversary is very quickly identifying, you know, what the real assets are. If you remember the original derivation of chess, it's, you know, it's, it's a game of battling between feudal lords to protect their actual citizens. So understanding that you've got the army of pawns, you've got some advanced players there, including, of course, the king and the queen. You want to really play the game of chess at a master level now because the stakes are high. And that means that you're not allowing your adversary to be able to quickly get to your king or queen and, and effectively jump over your pawns, but you're forcing the adversary to play the game. And as the NIST framework and as the NIST reference architectures have published this year, if you implement core things like logging with integrity, where chains of custody had a lot of value around not being able to have your logs tampered with, all your key indicators, your radar effectively being taken offline, but keeping your radar alive at all times in the day and at nighttime during a storm when there's no visibility is wearing, you know, during sunny days, that's critical. And then the other complementary concept of continuous integrity monitoring and corruption testing. Those are the kings and queens of the chessboard as NIST has identified them quite clearly. And if you are playing this game proactively and correctly, you do not let your adversary be able to target and take out your queen and then your king ultimately because you understand all the steps they have to take to get to, and you're forcing them to play your game for the first time as opposed to always being on the defensive, always reacting to what seem to be invisible attacks that come out of nowhere at the last minute. That's how you're, you, know, you're, you know you're just playing catch-up versus playing chess properly. I do like the visual of a chessboard. I, uh, you know, you've got, uh, it's probably an unfortunate way to describe an organization, but you've got pawns who are your everyday poor worker out there banging around keyboards just trying to do their jobs. You've got uh, rooks and bishops and knights running around uh, as uh, senior executives trying to keep the thing running. And you've got the, I imagine that I, I can mentally picture the king being a size though and the queen being the CEO trying to uh, <laughs> keep her head around how this is all running. But you did mention a fantastic resource, and uh, I, I recommend everyone jump online and, and have a look at it. But if you look at attack.mitre, M-I-T-R-E dot org, you'll find right on their homepage from memory last time I looked, uh, there's this enormous matrix 
uh, that looks a, a little bit too much to absorb. But when you look at it in each of the key areas from I think it's you know, reconnaissance on one side all the way through to impact on the other side, there's key elements that effectively, as you said, you know, are laid out like a chessboard of key things you can step and various uh, uh, techniques, I, I think it's from memory, are defined uh, from you know how you start uh, detecting these things and seeing what's happening, whether it's, it's monitoring pre or post all the way through to kind of you know dealing with the impact of it and how to how to address that and, and either plan for the impact or respond to it. Um, and uh, again, I highly recommend folk reach out to Valonie's team and have a conversation about where ChainKit can help them with all of that. Um, one thing that comes to mind, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of these uh, frameworks that have come out of, of NIST, uh, and uh, I made a note of, of a couple of them. In particular, they talked about that whole challenge of identifying and protecting uh, through detecting, responding, and then the recovery process. Walk us through briefly kind of how those frameworks uh, are played out in the context of, of ChainKit and, and where you fit into that space and how you can help organizations as they look to implement key components of that framework from NIST. Yeah, certainly. And again, this is uh, the, the way that you can apply this great resource, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, what the, the value that NIST adds through their canonical, you know, five steps that we'll walk through, as well as through these latest prescriptive reference architectures, is that you're now forcing the adversary to play by your rules, as opposed to the asymmetric warfare they typically enjoy being able to run the board and do whatever they want. So the the key steps we we outlined earlier on are broken down into three, the five steps into three. The first grouping is identifying and protecting your assets. And the key thing there is if someone can basically create a safe list or allow list, we don't use the term whitelist anymore, so safe list or allow list of what your assets are, and then tamper with that list, then you're already on the back foot because you're not even able to protect the baseline and verify against the baseline. So building chains of custody around your identified assets and knowing exactly which assets you have to protect and not being deceived by having the adversary add or remove some of those assets from the list to protect is really the first value that you have by building chains of custody as part of the cybersecurity framework from NIST. The second one is the one we tend to focus on a lot as an industry, and that's detecting attacks as they're going on and being able to not just instantly but programmatically respond because there's usually a set of actions you want to take that you don't necessarily want to be executing manually and insert you know, stress or human error into the process. You want to automate the detection and automate the uh, immediate response as much as possible. And then finally, of course, you want to fully recover from attacks and you want to first understand where the attacks, you know, uh, have, have they had no impact? Have they had partial impact, which is often likely? Or have they had a really deep impact where we need to do more of a full recovery? So it's back to understanding what your baseline is, what your proper operating environment and data and your systems and networks look like, and making sure that if, you know, more of a, a, a full uh, or, you know, complete recovery is required, you actually know exactly what you know what baseline you have to recover to and how to measure that, that recovery is a success. One of the questions that comes up a lot uh, is just around the whole technology space and and are we at a point where this you know increasing problem uh, can actually be solved and, and and one of the things that people ask me is you know are we at a point now where technology exists to solve this problem? I mean the the whole challenge of cyber attacks and cybersecurity and ransomware as we've been talking about today, the, the issue of you know, data risk and data protection as a whole and not new topics, nor are they new risks, uh, whether it's personally or, or professionally uh, in enterprises, um, albeit they've seen a significant increase due to our pivot to organisations being data-driven. Um, 
And uh, we now live in an increasingly always-on, always-connected world, so that's dramatically increased the surface attack as well. Um, but this, you know, the massive growth in risks related to this uh, expansion of the attack service, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone when we step back and look at this you know, through a different lens. But the question I keep getting in boardrooms, particularly, and across the enterprises, you know, is there a solution to all this? Does technology exist to solve it? Uh, I'd really love to get your take on this because you, you know, the short answer is yes, in that you've got an organisation you founded in that particular space. Um, but I wonder if we can do this maybe in two parts. So let's just start with the first part, and that is that you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to any bona fide business or technology professional that there's been a significant increase in cyber attacks. Um, but should it come to them as a surprise that there's been this, the, the flow on uh, you know, increase in ransomware incidents? Yeah, so definitely this is a two-part answer. And, uh, and the first part is technology uh, has helped all of our lives, but it's also enabled and accelerated the problem that, that COVID really pointed out, which was, uh, I think we all remember sometime in March where pretty much over one weekend, we went from working in an office to working from home. You know, the, the knowledge economy, the, the offices, knowledge workers that uh, you know are, are part of our communities and ecosystems very radically shifted how we work. And that had some dramatic impacts. And I, I in fact, uh, wrote a blog in early April about this called the COVID cyber echo effect, which is inevitably professionals in the industry could predict that the change from all of us working in an office with a protected and monitored local area network to all of us working at home now, creating effectively thousands, if not tens of thousands of remote offices that are part of our network business perimeter that that is just a radical change you know in in landscape that presents an obvious opportunity with lots of chinks in the armor as we've said to for for the cyber adversaries to exploit and that's in fact exactly what's happened perhaps it's actually taken a bit longer initially it took more than you know march april may for cyber criminals to exploit them but now these holes that are not all fully plugged are definitely being exploited at scale and this is why we're seeing the increase you know in ransomware the increase in malware data breaches and so forth. And this is where, again, you've got to bring more systemic thinking to play here because you can't plug thousands upon thousands of holes manually or even using outdated automated techniques for the landscape of yesteryear. You've definitely got to focus on looking at the modern landscape, which is very much a decentralized working environment, no longer a centralized working environment, and being able to apply technology with people in process uh, that actually reacts and responds to the decentralized work we live in, work environment we live in, because we're not going to stop the business. We're not going to stop how we work. We have to enable businesses to to be secure in this decentralized environment. I do remember reading that, and I think you described uh, our current time in, in the world as a golden age for hackers. I think you described it, something to that effect. Unfortunately, it is, as we're seeing, yes. Uh, which I thought was very pertinent. Um to that point, though, you know, like, as you said, we, you know, in the shift to work for home, and we, we literally created, as you said, you know, not, not even just thousands, but millions of, of these remote offices. And as you alluded, it was like, you know, you've got people without technical backgrounds having to, you know, go through the, you know, it's almost like every person had to be a little enterprise. They had to do the HR transition themselves. They had to effectively do team level transition of a team of one. They had to establish a technical working environment. Uh, they had to do all of the workplace health and safety. <laughs> um, right. You know, they had to make sure that, you know, all of those things. And as I said before, it's like, you know, the number of times I talk to people 
and they've just realized, you know, I'm using my personal Wi-Fi and I don't even know if I've got wireless encryption enabled. How do I do that? Exactly. And, and it extends so far beyond that because no one really is a, is in a professional you know, level to be able to audit their home environment as a, as a proper regulated home office. So things like our TVs, having microphones for convenient voice command recognition, recording all the things we talk about at work, perhaps dealing with confidential regulated data. Of course, the smart speakers like Alexa and Google Home, but even our mobile phones now being used where our defenses and guards are down in more of a casual setting at home, recording everything and all that telemetry now, unfortunately being accessible via hacking to adversaries dramatically amplify, amplifies not just the volume of these decentralized offices, but amplifies many, many more dimensions of risk now that we're only beginning to mitigate. And one of the techniques, I think, one of the, the ways you can try and cover all these off and begin to audit your environment and begin to look at where the gaps are with regards to the new realities of compliance and improve your security posture is log. You have to log more than you've ever had before. You can't rely on a controlled network to identify and protect you against threats. You've got to just log all your endpoints. You've got to log... Mm happening on your Windows laptops. You've got to log that home PC that's shared for homework and your spouse's hobbies and work as well. And you've got to log, as you mentioned, those access points like our Wi-Fi routers and our broadband internet access modems. And only after you log all that telemetry, do you have to make sure that it isn't being tampered with or you capture it and analyze it centrally and begin to play the game of chess where you've actually got all you know full visibility onto the board and the pieces and you can see your adversary coming and do something about it. Yes, I had, uh, as a little side th note here, I had an associate uh, literally in my street come and knock on the door and say, someone in the office is saying that they want SNMP access to my access point and my internet router, uh, simple network uh, management protocol. Mm -hmm. And I said, hang on, what are you talking about? They said, oh, they want to monitor and log everything so that they can see if anything's going wrong. And I said, but hang on, isn't that your personal network? You don't want them monitoring you surfing the web or you potentially looking at curious content. And they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So you've got this poor person in the IT department potentially saying, oh, I need the IP address and SNMP uh, access to your, uh, your edge point uh, devices. And they're like, oh, I don't really want you to be watching what my kids are doing at school and what they're watching on Netflix. The second part of that question, I guess, is, um, you know, when we think about does the technology exist today to address and solve the challenges securing and protecting the data, even in the case of successful hacks, um, you know, the whole ha having you know, in place uh, chains of custody, as it's called, uh, and to be able to uh, track and manage this. I mean, talk to us what talk to us about what that actually means when we think about the, you know the technology does exist. You have an organisation that has a, a large part of that technology. Uh, when you're in a position of, of having the tech in place to detect an incident when it comes about, potentially protect the data, uh, having in place you know, chains of custody, as, as you refer to, which I'd love to delve into a little bit more, what does it actually mean to have that in place and, and, and what does it enable to track and trace perpetrators? I think if you, we narrow it down to one main advantage, it's visibility. So today, you know, there's a lot of best practices around recognizing there's no single silver bullet to having, you know, perfect shield of defense in a, in a very rapidly adaptive, modern, you know, cyber, cyber crime, cyber attack landscape. So the concept of defense in depth, having multiple layers of defense is uh, an old and very tried and true and proven, you know, battle technique, battle tactic, a defensive battle tactic, and certainly a very, you know, a well understood and, and recognized cybersecurity strategy as well. 
And those multiple layers include that combination of having you know, advances in machine learning being adapted towards identifying threats, that pattern matching we talked about earlier, that's often referred to as behavioral analytics, looking at the behavior of a malicious user in your environment and identifying them as such based on that behavior. That's a category of techniques we call the probabilistic or machine learning based analytic solutions. But those again are only as good as the visibility you have on the playing, you know, on the playing board, if you will, uh, in the battlefield. And the adversaries being keenly aware that their behavior is being tracked inside networks as they're victimizing those networks and that data are making themselves more and more invisible, going stealthier with every phase and every improvement to the evolution of their attacks, using techniques such as living off the land, meaning they're not even downloading malware in your environment anymore, but just using the tools you already have to run your business against you in an adversarial context. And then of course, covering their tracks because they often have the ability to operate as the administrators inside your network. One of the first and last things they do is identify their actions as they're being logged and remove them in real time to operate silently and stealthily in your network. And then once they're all done, to make sure that they can't actually be traced by law enforcement before the ransom, you know, ransomware demand is presented, they clear the logs as well as a final step. Uh, over and above, you know, covering their tracks as they go along. So that ability to have the visibility into what they're doing, particularly as they're not even downloading, you know, malware into your environment, into your environment anymore, but simply, you know, operating with tools that are, you know, as part of your, uh, your regular everyday work, being able to recognize those logs, recognize those activities in those logs before they're covered up, Make sure that they can't be cleared as a crime perhaps might be committed and announced so that you can engage with law enforcement and can offer them important artifacts for their digital evidence. That is what chains of custody are all about. It's making sure that you simply establish up front chains of custody around those key indicators, have them not be tampered with without your knowledge, have them not disappear at absolutely the wrong moment, but have all that key information, have all those key breadcrumbs available to you both in real time and after an incident is declared and a crime effectively has happened so that you're not you know, effectively defenseless and helpless as you realize that you're about to be victimized and, and you're about to have a ransom demand placed on, on your data and your systems, perhaps delivering frontline essential services. Yeah, I guess it comes down to, uh, you know, it's kind of like that Donald Rumsfeld uh, line, wasn't it, that we all sort of grew to love and hate, and that was the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns, and you, you can only make decisions yes. on information that's in front of you, staring at a at a, at a dashboard uh, with, with sort of no idea of what's going on behind it. It's just impossible. You're just guessing versus having all those controls you mentioned in place and being able to track and trace and log and and capture things that are happening as they're going, but also replay that. I guess there's some parallels to what we're doing with COVID-19 in many ways, because reverse tracing is how we get to the point where we find where the virus exactly. has entered society, exactly. and then we, we, we isolate and, 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 and address it, and then uh, and on we go. I imagine that seems to, is very much the case in, in some of this approach. So much so, in fact, the parallels between ransomware and COVID are, are just so striking to me. There's obviously a correlation there with regards to an increase in ransomware because of the uh, change to our environment that we just discussed that was COVID-inspired. However, I think it's the responses now where we're looking at all sorts of speculative techniques um, being almost hoped and prayed for as being an actual cure or response to COVID, you know, the, the, the virus. 
uh, whereas we're not emphasizing as much of the science that has to be followed more deliberately and looking at some of the more systemic solutions, whether it's, you know, letting the actual vaccine testing take its course so that the cure, you know, obviously uh, isn't actually worse than the disease when a virus is uh, when a vaccine is finally applied to the virus. Uh, but also just making sure that, you know, we are doing the, the mask wearing, that we are implementing contact tracing, that we're doing the systemic thing so that we don't have to have these very, very blunt instruments of locking an entire society down just to be able to contain the spread of something that can be tracked with much more surgical precision and can be prevented again with much more simple applications of mask wearing. Yeah, I guess, you know, we've seen that direct parallel, haven't we? I mean, when the initial outbreaks uh, you know, it seemed dramatic that that it looked like a city was locked down, but then eventually, uh, you know, essentially postcode level areas were locked down, and then eventually blocks. And we've had that here in Australia, where Australia went into a controlled measure, you know, whether it's uh, restricting flights internally or, or certain regions, and then eventually uh, we were effectively on top of it. But then we had an incident uh, where two flights came in on one day from an area on the other side of the planet that we hadn't anticipated. And it entered the country again because they were asymptomatic and wandered around for a while. And then once it was reverse traced when they presented to hospital, it was located. And then we had Victoria here in a southern state and in particularly Melbourne uh, with some, some, some outbreaks where, again, we went down to postcode level and we went down to uh, blocks of buildings and then, you know, families. And then the thing was dealt with. So we didn't use that. We didn't have to have this blunt instrument, the whole country going to lockdown. And then it's back under control uh, here in effect in Australia. And we've gone through what we call donut days of zero infections, zero deaths. Uh, and we're sort of tracking well to that. And I guess that, that direct, uh, as you described, striking parallel uh, from, I guess, you know, the COVID-19 challenge to the ransomware response. And that is that uh, it is easy to kind of lose our minds and, and start freaking out, thinking that the whole, you know, the sky's on fire and the earth's on uh, falling apart. But really a ransomware incident is a case of just tracking down how it entered the organization and how to respond to that and, and, and you know, have you got backups and, and are those backups infected or how far do you go back? And it needs to be that strategic, sensible approach because otherwise you can just lose your mind trying to figure out how to fight it. And particularly if it's in the process of still infecting your organization, people are running around doing things like trying to turn devices off. You can go quite insane quite quickly. <laughs> um, that, that's why, yeah, you know, I want to just keep promoting these papers that was published by NIST this year. Yeah. The, the four papers will have the link available to everyone. But if you just search NIST ransomware, NIST data integrity, they'll come up. And again, it lets you not have the blunt instruments, which fundamentally, you know, can cease your effectiveness or productivity in business. But these prescriptive, rational approaches you can take that are data integrity centric to complement a lot of the other, you know, defense and depth cyber security solutions you have for behavioral analysis. That is a, really a, an extremely effective response to, you know, to the, the ransomware crisis. And uh, just as it would be, in, in, uh, we're seeing actually evidence, you know, whether it's in China, whether it's in Korea, Vietnam, large parts of Africa, Germany, Australia, New Zealand as a prime example, when you take these approaches, these layered approaches, you can completely contain the threat. And, and I think that's within the realm of every business and every government organization that's targeted to be able to apply these same techniques and completely contain the ransomware risk. So it's like we've gone full circle. We've seen a parallel from uh, COVID-19 to ransomware, and now the approach to ransomware is to sort of look to what we've been able to successfully do in containing COVID-19. It's kind of uh, uh, rather prophetic in many ways. I wonder if we can wrap up on, on a little crystal ball gazing going forward. I mean, one of the uh, you've given some amazing insights in the whole challenge of what's happening around ransomware and, and data protection, certainly cyber attacks, and, and outline some of the amazing things that you can do with Chainkit and your team to help 
uh, either remedy the situation or, or, or mediate the situation. Um, as organizations are now having to navigate their way out of 2020, we're in the last quarter of the year and they ease into 2021. Um, and as we reach the end of a long and challenging year in a whole range of ways and safely get through the upcoming Christian holiday period of Christmas and some of the unknown waters that we've got to navigate through that process and human resource and technology and business and definitely, you know, managing data protection and, and, and warding off ransomware attacks uh, through the holiday period, which will probably further increase the tax service. I wonder if you can give some advice uh, to organizations as they look to develop business and technology strategy and supporting plans for the next 12 to 18 months as we get to the point where we ease into 2021 and beyond, um, both uh, you know, from your, your, your professional background as well as the context of what yourself and your team at ChainKit can offer. Yes, yeah, so, you know, all everything we've spoken about is no longer just really a nice to have or a recommendation. I think we want to look at some indicators as we wrap up 2020 to predict some obvious things in 2021, just as, you know, this this cyber echo effect I blogged about was kind of a predictable consequence from from April onwards this year. So the two indicators that I think we need to pay very close attention to, one of which is the whole process of ransomware is accelerating. It's as if the COVID virus were adapting radically even more quickly than it actually is right now, which means that, again, the static approaches we might be using or looking towards single-layer defenses or individual silver bullets will not apply here. The the attacks are automating. The attacks are evolving uh, their techniques at a rapid pace and literally outrunning cyber defenses such as machine learning technology and and, good manual security analytics. So we have to look at more you know, automated detection, which means we have to look at that complement of deterministic solutions, rule-based systemic solutions at the foundation, as well as the probabilistic behavioral analysis that we're seeing be a popular trend in cybersecurity today. And the other very, very disturbing trend is actually adding, I think, the, the right board level of urgency, since boards are still led by humans, not robots, is that the ransomware attacks are getting personal. Uh, you know, we, we referenced this attack in Finland that unfortunately I believe will be a model for next year where it wasn't just healthcare clinics that were being ransomed, uh, you know, as organizations for organization level, you know, high ransoms for that data. But it was actually the data, the therapies, you know, the actual mental health therapy notes and sessions and prescriptions for both adult and underage victims Those individual victims were being individually targeted, identified, and ransomed by these ransomware actors. So it's literally an evolution of a ruthless Machiavellian business model that unfortunately will be a trend in 2021. Uh, And so it's really going to force everyone to up their game in terms of board level and CIO, CISO level and security operations center, managed security center level tactics and, and techniques so that we do know, you know, what the bl- playing board looks like. We do know that we'd prefer if we set the rules in a game of chess and if we were reacting in a game of checkers or dominoes, and that we look at the basics in terms of last line of detection, of having integrity and chain of custody around your logs. And as you mentioned, of course, having a truly functional last line of defense in functional backups that, you know, follow that three, two, one rule of three copies at at least two sites with at least one copy offline so that it can't be corrupted by the ransomware attack itself. Yeah, that's some fantastic advice. And, and you touched on an interesting uh, incident there where uh, Nani was the institution uh, attacked, but also the individuals. And I think we're going to see uh, another 
Cambrian explosion, if you'll uh, pardon the uh, the Zoom bingo word uh, approach to that, in that mm-hmm. uh, you know the number of times I'm seeing things happen in, in spaces where uh, people have gotten their hands on data breach sets. They're mapping those data breach sets together to personalize the data. So the phishing attacks are getting much, much better. Um, they can personify uh, on one side the person that looks like they're sending the email, and they can personalize the direction of the emails being attacked such that it's almost impossible to tell whether it's it's your direct manager sending the email or, or, or you know the detail in which they can put in the email is so specific that it's frightening that you look at it thinking, how can they know so much? And yet we've got so many data breaches out there now with, with you know, it's not just my first and last name. I mean, my better half, uh, who, who donates blood and is part of Red Cross here, you know, had a scenario a couple of years ago where the Red Cross was breached through just an unfortunate incident where a database backup was just left in a place. You know, they basically backed it up and generated a, you know, a Linux tar file and compressed it and left it in a folder and then upgraded the database and forgot to delete the, the backup they'd taken temporarily just in case so they didn't have to go back to tape. And somebody just uh, crawled the site and found it. And it was just there. It was indexed. And uh, it was easy. It was like just grab it and ex- extract it. And there was a massive SQL dump. Uh, and, you know, everything, her blood type, her, her you know, uh, sexual history, any other details that she might have shared with them around the risk of, of her potentially donating blood was there. And it's not able to be gotten back. It's, it's gone. It's forever out there. And who yeah, knows how many so thousands have it, right? We have ever more sensitive information out there that can be hacked. And I think, you know, us being on a podcast is really interesting because of phishing attacks. We've already seen examples using AI deepfake technology that are being transformed into vishing attacks, voice phishing attacks, where people are able to sample our voices, you know, that are high quality on a podcast like this and literally use machine learning to recreate a script that we say. Uh, And so there's been incidents of managers, particularly overseas, with with very specific accents, calling employees and asking them to transfer some some funds over for, you know, a new a new supplier or a new customer. And because it's in a familiar voice of a manager or an executive, the uh, the the employee actually executing that wire transfer, but it turns out that it was not in fact their boss, their manager. It was a deep fake AI impression of that voice. Uh, and again, when our guards are down over a phone call, uh, is is a prime opportunity now that technology is enabling the adversaries to seize. And that's why we have to be able to log and identify and look at everything because that first line of defense in terms of the analysis, you know, has to happen before we even have to test our last lines of defense. Awesome. Well, Val, it's been fantastic. It's been another hour with you. Thank you so much for being featured on the show again. I can't wait to have you back. And uh, perhaps there's another whole conversation around how machine learning and artificial intelligence is being applied to these spaces in our next conversation. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much again to catching up with us. It's been an amazing conversation. Uh, And I do invite our listeners to tune into uh, uh, the whole show, uh, grab all the key takeaways, set up a call with Val and his team and have that conversation. And, and jump on chainkit.com and, and run through what their organization does and just reach out and have a conversation and, and kick off and look at where are you at now and where should you be and what are the key steps that Val and team can take you through and some of their partners uh, around the world who can help uh, fill any of the other gaps. And, uh, and I think the time is now. Like, don't delay it. Don't wait off. Uh, there is no such time a thing as, as waiting. These things are hitting us every day, 24-7. There's somebody out there, whether it's a script kitty or a professional or, in some cases, entire nations, uh, banging on the door 24-7 at a scale that's just eye-wateringly large now. Now's the time to have the conversation. And Val and his team are the people to have that conversation with. And uh, ChainKit, from everything I've seen so far, has a great solution into all of that space as you just wrapped up. And 
Val, thank you so much for making your time again. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on the show again soon. I really enjoyed recapping what we've learned in 2020, and yeah, we need now to prepare for 2021. Indeed, it's going to be an interesting new year. Well, you stay safe, take good care, give, us, give our regards to uh, your team, and we'll uh, talk soon. Likewise, Ed.